Uh, this morning, we are continuing our series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, today, Solomon is going to be providing us with a biblical theology of worship, with a biblical theology of worship. And he provides that for us in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. And if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. And if you're ready, say, I'm ready. I want to apologize ahead of time. I'm going to be very ranty this morning. Uh, we're going to be talking about worship and how to properly approach God. And so uh, I, I take that very seriously, and we all should. So I apologize ahead of time for how ranty I will be, all right? I told someone I'm going to be really ranty this morning upstairs, and he's like, so like every Sunday pretty much, huh? <laughs> Here's what it says. Verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen, everyone say listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we come before you this morning, I thank you for the sufficiency of your word and your work. I thank you for the sufficiency of the Bible and of the gospel. And so in light of that, Lord, as we talk about the subject of worship, I pray that you would enable me through the power of the Holy Spirit to rightly divide your word so that I may show myself approved not unto man but unto God. Lord, this is such an important passage in the overall series that we've been going through, but it's an important passage regardless of what series we're in because of all that Solomon teaches us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what biblical worship should look like. Lord, I think the reason why I was so convicted this week is that when you look at what the Bible actually says worship should be about, we in the American Western church are so far away from what the Bible actually says worship should be about. And so I pray, Father, that you would help me in this moment. We said last week, Lord, we're grateful that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, the, the word of God endures forever. And so I pray that in light of that, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be honoring and glorifying to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, this will be hard preaching, but I believe in light of scripture that hard preaching produces soft hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be what happens today, that it would be your word and your work for your glory and our good. We ask it and we beg it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated. All right, so 
We are jumping right in, have a lot to talk about this morning. We are, like I said, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 1 through 7. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, uh, what Solomon does through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is essentially he teaches us what proper biblical worship looks like. He teaches us what does it mean to worship God in a proper way. And what he does is he actually gives us three aspects of proper biblical worship. Three aspects. The first aspect of proper worship, according to Solomon, is that we must have a proper posture. Everyone say posture. A proper posture. Now, how do we know that? Well, look what it says in verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, guard your steps. Everyone say guard. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Solomon says that the first layer, the first aspect of proper biblical worship is having the proper posture. Now, before we address the posture, I want to quickly uh, address an assumption that Solomon makes in verse 1. He makes a major assumption about how often we go to the house of God. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He doesn't say if you go to the house of God. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, I would argue that Solomon is already taking a direct shot at the cultural Christianity that permeates this region. The reason why I say that is because he's not saying if you go to the house of God, but when you go to the house of God. But the cultural Christianity that permeates this city and permeates this region and permeates this country is so prevalent that literally the average church attender goes to church 1.7 times a month. 1.7. And that was before COVID. That statistic is from before COVID. I could not find a statistic after COVID. But when you look at the attendance numbers of churches since COVID, the numbers continue to drop. So the average faithful attender was coming to church 1.7 times a month. There's four weeks in a month, guys. I, just, I don't know if you know that. That's how months work. 1.7. I, I can't tell you how often I will be walking through, uh, uh, just going through life, and I will probably once a week meet somebody that goes to our church. And when someone tells me I go to your church, I think to myself, I wonder what going to my church means. Does that mean you show up on Easter? You come during Christmas? I had a guy one time, I was having a, a daddy-daughter date with my youngest daughter, so it already annoyed me that he was coming up to me while I was doing that. But then he came up to me, he's like, hey, I, I go to your church. I'm like, really? So I asked him a little bit about it. He's like, yeah, I, I, I watch you online, and I watch Andy Stanley online. And, I, and I'm like, listen, bro, if you listen to me and Andy Stanley, you ain't listening to one of us, because there's no way 
You can listen to me and Andy Stanley, bro. But he didn't go to either church, but I was his pastor. He doesn't say if you go to the house of God. He says when you go to the house of God. When you go. Listen, this is not a suggestion. It's a command. We are, we are commanded to be in the house of God. That's why the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So already back then, he was dealing with people who were already neglecting meeting together. If that was already happening back at the beginning of the early church, how much more is it happening today? But this is not a suggestion. This is a command. We looked at this a few uh, uh, months ago when we were uh, during the Easter service. We looked at, well, a couple years ago, actually, we looked at the life of Thomas. And we were talking about doubting Thomas. And what's interesting about Thomas is that even though Thomas was struggling with doubt, Jesus never showed up to Thomas. He never revealed himself to Thomas when Thomas was by himself. He waited for Thomas to be in community. And when Thomas was back with the other disciples, that's when Jesus showed up to address his doubts. It wasn't when he was doing his Lone Ranger Christianity. It wasn't when he was getting his daily Bible verse and inspiration from Instagram. It was when he was back in community with other people that Jesus reveals himself to Thomas. In Psalm 73, the, the psalmist, he's, he's struggling and he's wrestling because he is someone who is seeking to honor God. He is seeking to follow God. He is seeking to obey God. And yet he looks out into the world and all the wicked people, all the ungodly people, he says, are prospering. And he doesn't understand why these people who don't know God, who don't honor God, are getting all these good things and he's getting nothing. And the first half of Psalm 73, he's, he's wrestling and he's toiling and he's striving, trying to figure out how do I deal with this dichotomy that I see in the world around me. But even though he wrestles and even though he's praying and even though he's asking, he says that it is not until he is back in the house of God that the Lord reveals to him his answer. He said, once I came back, to the house of the Lord, there is where the Lord met me. That is the place where the Lord spoke to me, he says. I, I struggle when people are like, you know, I love Jesus, but I just, I just can't stand his church. I've been, I've been hurt by the church, so I just, I, I just can't do it. Did you know that Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride? So if someone were to come up to me and be like, hey, man, I love you, and I would love to hang out with you as often as possible, but don't bring your wife, though, because I can't stand her. <laughs> we would never hang out. Because if you can't accept my wife, you can't accept me. The church is the bride of Christ. You can't have the groom if you are not willing to also take the bride. And guess what? You are part of the bride if you are a follower of Jesus. Sunday morning, Pastor Tyler was praying this morning. We, we gather here on this stage and we get on our knees and we go before the Lord and we ask him to work in and through our services. And, and this morning, uh, uh, Pastor Tyler was praying and he said, in light of what we're going to talk about today, Sunday morning is the least we can do. Like, like, you got here today, you're like, this is the, look, 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 look how much I've done for God. No, no, this is the least you can do because we are commanded to do it. And God doesn't just want your Sunday. He wants your Monday through Saturday. 
Everything you have is borrowed. Everything. Your breath is borrowed. Your family is borrowed. Your, your house is borrowed. Your life is borrowed. Everything belongs to him. Sunday morning is the least you can do. We were singing the song this morning that, that he is the Lord of our life. He's not the Lord of your Sunday. He's not the Lord of your devotional time. He's not your Lord 1.7 Sundays a month. No, no, he's the Lord of your entire life. So, so, so he addresses that, right? He, 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 he addresses the, not the if you go to the house of God, but when you go to the house of God. And then he says, he addresses the posture. He says, guard your steps. The word there, guard, in Hebrew, it means to keep watch over something. It means to take heed. It means to be careful. That when you enter the presence of God, be sure to have the right posture. Be careful. Don't just walk in uh, uh, carelessly or casually because you are entering into the presence of the living God. We looked at it a few weeks ago when we were in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, redeeming the, the kairos because the days are evil. If there's ever been a moment where we need to look carefully how we walk, is when we are stepping into the presence of Almighty God. And listen, if you're new here or you're not, you don't consider yourself a follower of Christ, maybe you're just visiting, maybe your parents dragged you here, here's what I need you to know. I'd rather you get offended by the, what the Bible actually says. I'd rather tell you what the Bible actually says. And so if you walk away, you're walking away from the actual Bible and from the actual gospel. So this will be hard, but at least you will know. Don't ever, under any circumstances, casually or carelessly step into the presence of God. We are to have the right posture at the head level, at the heart level, and at the hand level. See, it's not enough to just have the right who. According to the Bible, you must also have the right how. See, we live in a culture that is so pagan, that is so post-Christian, that no one's worshiping the right who. So we think, well, if I'm worshiping the right who, then that must be good enough. But it ain't good enough. We aren't just to worship the right who. We are to worship using and approaching him through the right how. You know how I know that? Not only because Solomon is telling us that, but when you look at the life and the story of Cain and Abel, you see that play out. Cain and Abel had the same parents. Cain and Abel were worshiping the same God. They both had the right who. And yet we are told in the story of Cain and Abel that when they approach God, Abel brings God, the, 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 the firstborn of the flock, and Cain, instead of giving him uh, the first fruits from the ground, he just gives him whatever he had laying around. And it says that because of the offering that they brought and the heart that that offering revealed and represented, it says that God, he accepts Abel's offering, and he rejects Cain's offering. They both had the right who, but not the same how. Why? Because what Cain did 
is Cain decided, I am going to worship God on my terms. Not on his terms. I'm going to worship God on my terms. I'm going to show up however I want. And it says that he rejected Cain. Like rejected, rejected, because he ends up murdering his brother in jealousy. He just reveals how unholy his heart actually was. He ends up killing Abel. But he rejects Cain and he accepts Abel. It's not just the right who, it's the right how. Here's how you know that this was something, this is a theme that is true throughout the entire Old Testament. Because as a Jew, when you are going to the house of God, which by the way here, the house of God here, uh, it, it could refer to just any you know, sanctuary overall in general, but it specifically is referring to the, test, the temple that Solomon built for God back in 587 BC. Solomon's temple was this beautiful temple that Solomon built for the Lord. And when Jews would come from all over the countryside to this temple, there was actually a certain song selection they would sing through in order to prepare their heads, their hearts, and their hands for entering into the presence of God. There was, there was a set of psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And they would sing these psalms. And the reason why they were called the Psalms of Ascent is because Jerusalem was up on a hill. And so as they were walking their way towards Jerusalem, they would sing these songs. They would worship God through these psalms in order to prepare their hearts for entering into the presence of God. The other thing that I did not know is that I, already, I knew about the Psalms of Ascent, but they actually had specific songs and psalms that they sang on every step that led up to the temple. Another thing that I learned this week that I didn't know, I want to show you this picture real quick. I know it's a little hard to see, but these are the steps that led to the temple. And something that I want you to see is that the steps were different sizes and widths. They, they, they were random the way they were made. And here's why. The reason why they were made this way is so that you wouldn't carelessly just walk up to the presence of God. Because how many times you'll go up a staircase and not even think about going up a staircase? The steps were different sizes and proportions so that you would be forced to pay attention as you walked into and up to the presence of God. There were psalms and songs that they would sing at every step along the way in order to prepare themselves in order to posture themselves for the presence of God. In other words, when you approached the Old Testament temple, there were boundaries and there were barriers on purpose. And with every boundary and with every barrier, you would be reminded that he is in heaven and you are on earth. That he is the creator and you are the creation. That he is holy and you are sinful. Each boundary, each Barrier, the ultimate one being the curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And we'll talk about that later. Essentially, what one commentator said is that the word picture that Solomon wants us to have is Exodus chapter 3. When Moses is in the wilderness and he sees a fire in a bush and he goes to approach it and, and the Lord stops him and says, make sure you take your sandals off because you are on holy ground. Now, you may respond saying, well, all the examples you've given me up to this point are all Old Testament. That's all Old Covenant stuff. 
That's not my God. I, I'm, the, I'm the New Testament person. Well, in Hebrews 4, we are told to approach the throne of God with boldness. The throne, not only of God, but the throne of grace, it says. So we are so quick to focus on the word grace, the throne of grace. But just because it's a throne of grace, it doesn't mean it's still not a throne. We are not approaching our, our co-pilot, our, our buddy, our partner in crime. Even though it is a throne of grace, it is still a throne. You are approaching a holy God. That's why it says in Hebrews 12 that we are to offer God acceptable worship that is marked by reverence and with awe. This is, this is New Testament now. We are to approach God with acceptable worship. The implication is that there's unacceptable worship. And we are to approach him with acceptable worship. He explains what acceptable worship is. It is worship that is marked by reverence and awe. And then he tells us why. Because our God is a consuming fire, the author of Hebrews says. So yes, in Jesus, he ha we, we have a loving father. And yet that loving father is still a consuming fire. And so when we approach him, we have to make sure that we are approaching him with acceptable worship that is marked with reverence and with awe. Solomon says here that there's a difference between the sacrifice of fools and the worship of the wise. And he, he says here that the fool, verse one, do not know that they are doing evil. That when you show up into the presence of God uh, casually and carelessly and you're not preparing your posture at all, you may not know that you're doing evil, but it doesn't change the fact that you're doing evil. And so, so think about it. Since they don't know, their head is marked with ignorance. And when your head is marked with ignorance, then your heart ends up being marked with idolatry. And then once your heart is, is marked and characterized by idolatry, then your hands will be marked by immorality. And it goes from ignorance to idolatry to immorality. Solomon here is calling us to spiritual alignment and integrity. That from the head, heart, and hand level, at, at the, the attention, my affections, and my actions are all prepared, have all been prepared to enter the presence of God. That's why it says in 1 Samuel 15, God says, I require obedience, not sacrifice. That you can come and we can bring God whatever sacrifice we want. We can sing the song with all our might. God is more concerned about your obedience Monday through Saturday than he is about your sacrifice on Sunday. Because if there is obedience Monday through Saturday, then the sacrifice will overflow from that. Man looks at the outside. God looks at the heart. We determine our godliness and our holiness by external attendance, God is looking at our internal adoration. That's why Jesus says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. God wants all of you, not just part of you, 
all of you. And you know why he wants all of you? Because he created you and so you belong to him. So whether it is a Sunday morning worship service where you're coming together publicly or whether it's a private devotional on a Tuesday, whether it's public or private, we need to prepare ourselves. We need to posture ourselves to hear from God. You know what that means? Let me practically tell you what that means. One, it means that we get sleep. Because sometimes I'm preaching and it feels like people are just catching up on sleep. Go to bed, uh, go to bed at, at, at 1 a.m. and Oh, it's, it's Sunday. I don't care. I'll just take a little nap during the service. But we have to prepare ourselves. We have to make sure we sleep. We have to make sure that we uh, uh, give, ourselves, give ourselves enough time in the morning to open up the word of God and hear from him. But if you got to leave the house at 830 and you wake up at 812, you're not going to have time to spend time with Jesus. We, we have to posture ourselves. We have to prepare ourselves. Even as you step into the, think about how, when you think about how, how going back, I, I won't even throw you under the bus. I'll throw myself under the bus. When I think about how ignorant I am, how idolatrous I am, how immoral I am, how dare I approach the word of God without asking him to prepare me for the word of God? Like I'm just coming in neutral, right? As we step into this, this time, you should be praying on the way here. Lord, use this service for your honor and your glory. Who cares what anyone else thinks about this? What do you think about what happens here? Because you're the one that we're going to have to give account to. So prepare us. Pray, like literally, as you're coming in on Sunday morning, Lord, prepare my heart for whatever I need to hear. I pray that whoever's preaching from this pulpit is rightly dividing the word of God, not giving us just their opinions funny stories, parlor tricks, but the person's actually preaching the word. And if the word's actually being preached, if the work is actually being preached, prepare my heart, soften my heart so that I might receive what you have for me today. That's what it means and what it looks like for us to posture ourselves. So the first aspect, the first element of proper worship is having a proper posture. The, the second one, though, is having proper Praise. Everyone say praise. praise. In verses 1 all the way through verse 6, Solomon unpacks for us that it's not just important for us to have the right posture, it is also important for us to have the right and proper praise. Look, look what he says. I'm going to start reading second half of verse 1. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. And then he says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your word, your mouth, lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So, so he not only tells us to have a proper posture, he also tells us to offer up proper praise. So if the first aspect has to do with how we approach God, how we approach the house of God. The second aspect has to do with how we adore God 
once we are in the house of God. The first aspect had to do with our approach. This has to do with how we adore. When we have a proper posture, we will offer up proper praise. What is proper praise? Well, according to Solomon, based on what I just read, proper praise is centered around God and not around man. Proper praise is centered around the creator and not around the creator, the creation. And, and we know that because he mentions God's name. He says God four times. In the passage overall, he says God six times. This is easy, the mo easily the most vertical uh, uh, passage in the whole book. But, but in the section I just read, he mentions God four times. And what he argues is that proper praise is centered around not our person, but God's person. Proper praise is centered around not our words, but God's word. Proper praise is not centered around our works, but God's work. That is what he is arguing here in this section. And like I said, not only do we know it because he mentions God four times, but we also know it because he says to draw near to listen. And, and, and that word there, that phrase there, to listen, here's what it means. It means to listen and to hear in intelligently and attentively. So again, going back to what we said earlier, well, what that means is, is that when you step into the house of God and when you sit under the word of God, you are, you are doing it with intentionality and you are doing it attentively. In other words, and this is part of the reason why I believe we should all have Bibles. Because when you have your phone out, what ends up happening is you, you end up making the grocery list for the week. And you end up remembering all the people that you should have texted that you didn't text. And you end up checking social media. You know what this doesn't have? It doesn't have any notifications, no beeps, doesn't vibrate, doesn't distract you at all. We are to listen intelligently. We are to listen attentively. Get this. Not only do we listen and not only do we hear, but according to that Hebrew word is we listen for the purpose of obeying. We, we listen and we hear intentively and intentionally and intelligently in order to obey what the word of God says. In other words, if what I'm saying here right now is my opinion, don't listen to me. But if what is being said is the word of God, you listen for the purpose of obeying. You listen and you hear in order to obey. You show up and you say, Lord, I am not here to do my will. I am here to do your will. Tell me what your will is and I will go obey it. That's what the word there, listen, means in Hebrew. And then he follows up by saying, in light of the posture and in light of the fact that you are showing up to listen, he says, make sure that when you are in the presence of God, you talk less and you listen more. He says specifically, do not make vows. He, he, he warns against it. Jesus pretty much says, don't ever do it. 
In the New Testament, Jesus talks about the religious leaders who, who, who make a vow on, uh, on, the sac- you know, on the altar or make a vow on the gold around the temple. It was, it was nonsense, all the rules they had around vows. Jesus says, don't make any vows. I- instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, we as Christians should have such high integrity that we don't have to pinky swear every time we make a promise. Because if we say it's yes, it's yes. And if we say it's no, it's no. Jesus says, don't make any vows. Instead, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You see, but redemption is very different from religion. Because religion is all about promising God stuff. Religion is all about telling God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Here's the problem with making promises and deals with God. There, there, there are three. I'll tell, I'll tell you them quickly. Number one, one of the reasons why making vows and promises to God is not wise is because you don't know the future. So when you tell God, I will do this by this date, you don't know if you'll be alive by that date. So since you don't know the future, you shouldn't act like you do. The second reason, though, is what I said earlier. Everything that is yours already belongs to God. You're just borrowing it. The breath in your lungs, borrowed. The money in your bank account, borrowed. The kids at your house, borrowed. Your talents, your gifts, borrowed. So, so what are you going to barter with God? What are you going to tell God? Hey, God, if you give me this thing, I'll give you that. What's that thing that you can give God that doesn't already belong to him? And then the last reason why you shouldn't make promises and vows to God is because just because you made a vow and a promise doesn't mean that God agreed to it. So there are people who say, God, if you heal my family member, I will give you blank. If you give me a spouse, I will give you whatever. Just because you made the promise and the vow doesn't mean God heard it. So now those people, they fulfill their part of the agreement. And then God doesn't fulfill what they saw was their, his part of the agreement. And they're mad at God for a promise he never made. Solomon says that when you are truly in the presence of God, words decrease and worship increases. You know why I think that is? Because Jesus says in the New Testament that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when the heart has been truly convicted, when the heart is truly contrite, when, when the heart is truly humble, there's nothing to say. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, we are told that when the seventh seal is opened by the Lamb of God, there was silence in heaven for 30 minutes. John says that for a half an hour, you couldn't hear a pin drop in heaven. See, when I've really been in the presence of God, we think, oh, God, God, is, we must have the presence of God, right? Because there's lights and, there's, and there's, there's music and there's, you know, the volume is really high. No, 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 no. When you really are in the presence of God, you go quiet. There is silence that happens. If, as, I, as I think back on my 17, almost 18 years of ministry, the most powerful moments of my time with God alone have been when I've not been talking. Here's the problem with this whole concept of proper praise. When I look around the church in the West, 
When I look around this third culture, this post-Christian culture that we find ourselves in, in the American church, I see the opposite of what Solomon is talking to us about. Instead of building our entire worship services around God's word and God's work, worship services are built around our words and our works. I came across this quote uh, by Dr. Ian Proven. Now, before I show it to you, this is a, a survey that was done between 1985 and 1990. This is almost 40 years ago now. Look what he said. He said, a survey of sermons done by evangelical, uh, a survey of sermons by evangelical ministers between 1985 and 1990 suggests, in fact, that over 80% of these sermons, of these, made God and his world spin around the surrogate center of the self. And then the next part. This is related to the, the professionalization of the ministry in which the fulcrum around which ministry turns is no longer God but the church, which itself thus turns out to be a kind of idol. So in this survey that was done almost 40 years ago, they determined that over 80% of the sermons that were being preached were centered around man and not around God. Church, this is before social media. This is before internet. This is before T.D. Jakes. This is before Michael Todd. This is before Stephen Furtick. This is before Joyce Meyer. This is before Joel Osteen. Before all those people. 40 years ago, it was already happening. It was already happening. Already happening. And, and, and we, we were, we were uh, uh, talking about this as, a, as an elder board and as a staff over the past month or so. Here, here's what happens. When you start, when the sermon starts with you, the sermon has to end with you. And if it's about you, then it's on you. That's the part no one ever tells you. That if it's about you, then it's on you. And, and, and one of the videos, we watched this, this interview uh, uh, of this pastor who uh, used to lead a seeker-sensitive church. And he talks about all the tactics that they use. And get this, one of the tactics that they use was there was specific vocabulary that they would use in order to not offend people. So instead of calling it sin, they would call it scars and wounds and trauma because you don't want to offend anybody, so you would use language like that. You wouldn't talk about the holiness of God. You wouldn't talk about the wrath of God. You wouldn't talk about uh, 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 the need for atonement. You wouldn't talk about any of that stuff because you don't want to offend. And then he says that one of the things that they would do is they would have the keyboard player come out at just the right time, right when the sob story was about to start, and they would just start playing and grooving. That's one of the things I had to change when I got here. I was like, hey, you can come out and play when my sermon's done and I'm praying. If, if, if the reason why you're responding to what I'm saying is because someone's pressing the right keys, you're not responding to the gospel. 
And so here's what's happening. Ephesians 4 says that the reason why God has given the church, the pastors, the teachers, the apostles, the evangelists, is so that, he says, they might equip the saints for the work of the ministry. But one of the things that he says there is that when the word of God is being rightly divided, when the work of God is being faithfully preached, he says that in addition to the saints being equipped for the work of the ministry, one of the things that happens is that they are able to remain steadfast, they are able to remain steady, when the winds and the waves of, of false doctrine show up, when the winds and the waves of human philosophy show up, that one of the reasons why it's important for you to hear the word of God and for me to show myself approved to God and not to you is because when you sit under the word of God, what starts to happen is you become stable to the place where when the winds come and when the waves come, you don't get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, Paul says in Ephesians 4. It says in Hebrews that, that, that the gospel is like an anchor. So, so if you're a boat and you have the gospel, the anchor goes down into the ground. And the storms can be crazy, but you're not budging because the anchor is in the ground. Amen? But, but here's the thing. I think the reason why. When we look at the pew, there are people being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. I would argue that the reason why it's happening in the pew is because it's actually happening in the pulpit. The people that get up to preach, they don't believe in the sufficiency of the word and the work of God. You know why I know they don't? Because if they actually believed it, they would preach it. They wouldn't spend the first 15 minutes telling you a funny story. They wouldn't spend the, la the end of the sermon telling you about your destiny and your breakthrough and your potential. Because pastors themselves are being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Since they don't have the anchor, they don't believe the gospel themselves, they're being tossed to and fro at the pulpit level. So if it's happening in the pulpit, you better believe it's going to happen in the pew. But the reality is, if the word and work of God are not sufficient for Sunday, they will not be sufficient Monday through Saturday. If when you come here on Sunday, the individual speaking is not preaching the word and the work, and by doing that, showing you that they are sufficient on Sunday, why would you think they are sufficient Monday through Saturday? If they are not sufficient for preaching, why would you think they're sufficient for your parenting? Why would you think they're sufficient for your politics? Why would you think they're sufficient for your singleness? And one of the things that bothers me is that as cultural Christians, a biblical Christian looks at something and runs culture through the lens of the Bible. A cultural Christian gets triggered by everything that happens and they run the Bible through the lens of culture. But the reason why people who are in the pew don't ever ask, what does the gospel say about this? Or what does the Bible say about this? Is because on Sunday morning, the Bible and the gospel aren't being brought up. So that biblical, the lack of biblical literacy at the head level results in a lack of gospel fluency at the heart level, which then produces a sinful idolatry at the hand level. If the service and the sermon do not begin with what God said, they will never end with what God did. Can I get an amen? Author Alyssa Childers says that one of the things that marks progressive Christianity is that in progressive Christianity, the Bible is a human book written about God, 
But in biblical Christianity, the Bible is a divine book given by God. You see the difference? It's not a human book written about God where you get good advice and tidbits on how to live your best life now. It is not a human book written about God. It is a divine book given by God. That, that this is the very word of God. This is the very word of God. When the word of God is being preached, the Bible, when the work of God is being proclaimed, the gospel, it says in Luke 24 that the disciples, when they heard Jesus uh, preaching the word and the work, it says that their hearts burned within them. Because only the word of God can do that, church. So what happens in the West is that people come together not to vertically exalt and enjoy the Savior, but to horizontally entertain sinners. Sunday morning church, in light of 1 Corinthians 14, you can go read it, is for the purpose of vertical worship, not for the purpose of horizontal witness. See, see, what happens is when you get it flipped, we were talking about this as an elder board, when you get it flipped, the seeker-sensitive model is, hey, we're, everyone come here, and we're going to have a, a, a crusade for Jesus. Everyone come here, and it's all about horizontal witness. It's all about entertaining and engaging the sinner. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that church is for vertical worship. And when that sinner walks into the presence of God, it says that what will draw the sinner is not your funny stories, uh, uh, is not the at the movies uh, uh, series. What will draw the sinner according to scripture, is that they will walk in 1 Corinthians 14 and they will see the body of Christ worshiping God and they will say, what is this? I've never seen anything like this. I want this. And when you make Sunday about vertical worship, then all of a sudden, Monday through Saturday becomes horizontal witness. But if, but if the witnessing happens on Sunday horizontally, then the, the people that leave, don't, they don't do any of the witnessing because my pastor is the only one that does the witnessing. No, no, we come together for vertical worship. And when you sit under that and you are exposed to that, it produces and it results in horizontal witness. So what happens now in churches is that instead of getting good advice, you end up getting, instead of getting a good announcement, you end up getting good advice. Instead of, in many pulpits, instead of getting vertical salvation, you are just offered horizontal steps. Instead of being given redemption, you end up receiving recommendations. Instead of gospel declarations, you end up getting religious demands. And what happens is they end up preaching a Bible that doesn't offend, that tells you about a God that doesn't judge, and a Savior who doesn't save, and a Christianity that doesn't cost you anything. It's the Genesis 3 gospel. It's the same gospel that Satan preached in the garden. You don't, you don't need God. Why be with God when you can be like God? It's all about your potential and your breakthrough and your haters and your trauma and your scars and your wounds. And you showed up self-centered and you leave more self-centered. And then those same people will be like, well, we get, you should see how many hand raises we get. That's what Michael Todd, that's how he tried to uh, justify the, the blasphemous Easter service they did. I won't even tell you, go watch it. Don't, don't even waste your time. But then he, he, the way he justified it, well, you should have seen how many hands were raised for the gospel. Bro, what gospel? 
They didn't, they didn't hear the gospel. I don't care how many hands were raised. That's why one of the things that, that Pastor Ronnie Stevens says, he's one of my mentors, he says, one of the mistakes we make is we will look at these false teachers and we will say, well, clearly God's, God's in it because look how many people are watching. Look how many people are following. Ronnie Stevens says, if that's the way you think God works, that a lot of people means that God's present and God's blessing, he said, then the most loved and favored congregation in all of America would be Lakewood Church under Joel Osteen. Who cares if it grows fast? Weeds grow fast too. Let me say this and then we'll move on to the final point. It's so easy to blame the teacher. Oh, it must be the teacher's fault. And, and, and to a degree there is. That's why James says that a teacher will be held uh, more accountable because of the role. He's like, don't be quick to be a teacher because you will be held accountable. But look what it says in 2 Timothy 4 about the listeners. We're so quick to blame the teacher, but look what it says about the listener. Paul is writing to a young pastor, Timothy. This is the last letter Paul ever wrote before he died. And one of the last chapters, even though he didn't write in chapters, but the last part of this letter, he says to Timothy, I charge you, Timothy, which means to warn, uh, to assert, uh, there's an R there, to assert and to insist. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, that's, that's a pretty big charge, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. So what is he charging him to do? Preach the word. Not your opinions, not your insights, not your politics. Preach the word, he says. And then he says, and be ready in season and out of season. And we talked about this in the past, that, that, that many preachers are tempted to not preach the word specifically when it's out of season. When it's in season and you're seeing God do and do stuff and he's moving, it's easy to keep preaching the word. But when you are out of season and you're not able to see uh, the fruit the way you usually do, the temptation is to preach something else. He says, no, preach the word in season and out of season. Your fruitfulness has no bearing on your faithfulness. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And look how, look what he says next. With complete patience and teaching, and, and one of the guys I disciple, he, he was the one that showed me this passage this week, and I, and I was like, man, I'm, this is going to be said on Sunday. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Get, get this. The word here for endure means to bear with something, to put up with something, to suffer something. And the word here for sound, sound teaching, it refers to teaching that is healthy, accurate, whole. And what I mean by whole is that we are to preach the whole counsel of God, that we are to go verse by verse, passage by passage through books of the Bible. Because if all you ever get is topical sermons, that you're, the pastor just preaches on whatever he wants to preach on. So, so get this, this is crazy to me. Here's what Paul's saying. Sound teaching, healthy teaching, accurate teaching, pure teaching has to be endured. It has to, you have to bear with it. You have to put up with it. You have to suffer through it. In other words, as I preach the word of God to you, when the word of God is rightly divided, it says in Hebrews 4 that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It hurts. It hurts. When the word of God is actually being preached, there's conviction. Not condemnation, but there's conviction. 
It must be endured. So, so if you're sitting under the, the sound teaching and sometimes it's hard to hear, well, of course it's hard to hear because God's word is perfect and we are imperfect. God's word is holy and we are unholy. Everything in the world outside of us, everything in our heart inside of us tell us that we are the center of the universe. And then God's word shows up and says, no, you're not. It must be endured. Don't miss that. And it says that there will be people, there will come a day, which we are in it, by the way, where people will not endure it. They will not put up with it. They will not suffer through sound teaching, healthy teaching, accurate teaching. But get this. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The word here is the word epithumia, over desires. That they will, they will, finding their significance, their satisfaction, their security in things under the sun, they will accumulate people that will preach to their idols. That will preach to their passions and to their lusts and to their sinful affections. So, of course, the, the false teachers have a big gathering. Because they're preaching to the passions of people. They're preaching to the, the affections and to the lusts of sinful people. You already think the world revolves around you, so you show up and he tells you the world revolves around you, and you're like, that's exactly what I thought. Sound teaching must be endured. And unfortunately, there will be people who will not endure it because of the idols in their heart. And it says, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So get this. When they don't have proper teaching, ignorance at the head level will result in idolatry at the heart level, which will then produce immorality at the hand level. The more you sit under the rightly divided word, the more you sit under the faithfully declared work, the more you endure sound teaching, the more you will understand the message, which is the gospel, and the more you will undertake the mission, which is discipleship. And the last thing I want to look at as we conclude, the last aspect of proper worship is that we are to have a proper perspective. Everyone say perspective. In verse 7, right at the very end, Solomon gives us a proper perspective. He says, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity but God is the one you must fear. So he gives us a proper posture, a proper praise, and the final part is a proper perspective. And he says that a proper perspective of God is fear. The only one who we should fear is God alone. Theologian A.W. Tozer once said that what a person thinks about when they think about God is the most important thing about them. So the most important thing about you, according to Tozer, is not your career, is not your family, uh, uh, is not your, uh, your net worth. He says, what a person thinks about when they think about God is the most important thing about them. Now, I know that sounds like an overstatement. I know it almost seems like he's overreacting. But here's why he's not. Because whatever you behold at the head level will then determine what you believe at the heart level, which will then determine how you behave at the hand level. Your theology at the head level 
will then determine your doxology at your heart level, which will then lead to your praxology at the hand level. What you look at will determine what you love, which will determine how you live. And so the reason why it is the most important thing about you is because how you view God, what your perspective of God is, will determine what you do with the rest of your life. The word here, fear, gets a very bad rep. We, we think of fear, we're like, what does that mean, to be terrified? The word fear in Hebrew, it means to revere someone. It means to respect someone. It means to honor someone and give them the all they are due. And that's why it says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That if you don't fear the Lord, you can never have true wisdom and knowledge. So according to Solomon, the only one who should be feared, the only one who should be revered, the only one who should receive honor is not the preacher, it's not the worship leader, it's not the volunteer, it is God and God alone. Because God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whether you accept that or not. That's why Paul says in Galatians 1, we looked at Galatians several months ago, he says, so am I now trying to please man or Christ? He's like, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. In other words, Paul says, my ministry is either about God, fear of God vertically, or fear of man horizontally. But you can't have both. See, here's the thing, though. The, the problem with a biblical perspective, our view of God, is that you end up with a biblical prognos prognosis which is our view of self. The more I understand who God is, the more I understand who I am. A biblical perspective results in a biblical prognosis, and I realize just how sinful and broken I am. The more I see his holiness, the more I see his otherness, the more I see my unrighteousness and my brokenness and my sinfulness. Remember what we said about the temple. At the temple, there were certain barriers and boundaries that kept you just from casually entering into the presence of God. But the greatest barrier and boundary was the curtain, the curtain that separated humanity from divinity. And that curtain was there because he is holy and we are sinful. And if we were to just enter into the Holy of Holies, we would die immediately. And so as a result, sacrifices were always needed. You know, it took, if you go back and look, Solomon sacrificed 120,000 sheep when he inaugurated his temple, the temple of God. 120,000. Think about how many hundreds of thousands of sheep and lambs were separated, were, were sacrificed at the temple over the course of that temple standing. It, it, it never stopped. And the reason why it never stopped is because sin never stopped. Our sin required atonement, so the priest kept offering lambs. Animals kept dying. Animals kept being sacrificed. So it was not the permanent solution. Something had to be done, but unfortunately, there was nothing we could do. And so what was impossible for man was possible with God. And we are told that at just the right time, God decided to send from above the sun to under the sun, the final priest and the final sacrifice. 
And we know that because in the New Testament, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus from a long way off and he cries out and he proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came to be the final high priest, to be the final sacrificial lamb. And by doing the work that he did, he ended up fulfilling the entire Old Testament sacrificial temple system. At the cross, he took our place and he atoned for our sins. And something that gets overlooked all the time is that when Jesus cried out, it is finished. The thing that happened, the moment he cried that out, is that that very curtain that separated humanity from divinity, that religious curtain was torn in two. And it wasn't just torn in two. It wasn't torn from uh, the bottom up, like someone just grabbed scissors and started cutting it. No, no, no. It says it was torn from top down. In other words, it was the Father himself accepting the sacrifice that was made and making a way, it says in Hebrews 10, through the curtain, that is, through the body of Christ. He made a way so that now, because of the redemptive work of Jesus, we can step into the presence of the holy God. The only way for us to be made right with the creator is by approaching him through the mediator, through the savior. And it says that who, for all, if you're here, you've never done this, for all who confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus Christ is Lord shall be saved. God's revelation always leads to God's redemption. His Bible always leads to his gospel. The it is written always points to the it is finished. And what bothers me, church, as we land the plane is this. It bothers me when church growth people will be like, how, how can we compete with the world? How can the church of God compete with the world? They got social media and they got Hollywood and they got, you know, a production. And they literally like there's people who legit are concerned. How is the church of God going to compete with the world? I actually agree. There is no competition. But it's not the church that can't compete with the world. It's the world that cannot compete with the church. Church, we have been given the person of God. We have been given the presence of God. We have been given the power of God, the most transforming, the most catalytic, the most powerful force in the universe is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the world that cannot compete with the Lord. So in light of the gospel, we don't approach God based on our promises. We approach God based on his promises. We, we don't approach God based on our merits. We approach God based on his merits. We don't approach God based on our righteousness. We approach God based on his righteousness. According to the gospel, we are not saved by our many religious words and works. But we are saved by one redemptive word and work. So religion might produce anxiety, but redemption produces adoration. Religion might produce tiredness, but redemption produces tranquility. Religion might produce exhaustion, but redemption produces exaltation. And the only way for us to ever, ever, ever offer up proper worship to God, the only way we will ever have a proper posture and a proper praise and a proper perspective is if we approach God 
through the proper person who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We are so glad to have you here with us today. Um, I am Kristen Pruitt. And I'm Whitney Clay. And uh, we have Katie is uh, moderating for us today. So we would love for you to drop in, uh, let us know where you're watching, listening from. Um, and if you have any prayer requests, we would love to know those. There's going to be a QR code somewhere above my head um, that you'll be able to scan. Um, we would love for you to scan that and let us know if you have any prayer requests. Yeah. yeah. And it was such a great message today. So we're going to jump right in. There's yeah. a lot to talk about. Uh, we're going to reread the passage this morning. So uh, we're in Ecclesiastes 5, and I'll read verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know what, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you make a vow, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should go, than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. All right. So what is something new, Kristen, that God taught you in the message today? Did this truth comfort, convict, or confront you? And why? Yes. So I don't, well, I'm sure there are things that was new. I think for me, um, something that was just a good reminder, I think. Um, So when he's talking about proper posture um, and kind of near the end of that point, he talks about practically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he kind of lists off a few different things. Um, One of them, though, was uh, praying for God to prepare our hearts. Um, And I think for me, definitely like a reminder, a conviction. Um, So I'm walking through a book right now with one of the girls that I meet with. And um, this was also kind of in one of the chapters we recently read. Um, and it convicted me then and it convicted me this morning, but just a reminder of, um, like how often I'm like, don't pray on my way to church. Or even when I like open up the word to spend time with God, like, um, prepare, like asking God to prepare my heart, um, for my time with him praying as I'm reading the word. Um, so I think that was a really great reminder for me and definitely convicted. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good to think about like how we can just, like not even in the gathering, but also in like my own personal time with mm-hmm. the Lord, like yeah. just rush and not really ask the Lord. Like you said, okay, God, what do you have for me? Like, mm-hmm. and to cherish those moments mm-hmm. because we're meeting with the Lord. Like yeah. the fact that we can, like in Hebrews, come into the throne mm-hmm. of grace yeah. and receive mercy and help in our time of need, but that we can approach our loving and holy mm-hmm. God who's mm-hmm. sitting on that throne. Mm-hmm. And I think so many times I just yeah. like don't think about that. Yeah. And I just come in and it was convicting this morning for me too. Yeah. To think like, what is the posture of my heart mm-hmm. to actually prepare myself to receive from the Lord? Yeah. 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 Um, Okay, according to Solomon, part of our problem is that we don't approach the worship of God, private or public, with the proper posture. So kind of like what we were just talking about. What does it practically look like to guard our steps as we enter the presence of God? Yeah, I love how he was talking about how they would sing those songs of ascent, like on the different steps, like even just Mm -hmm. to remind themselves of like God's holiness Mm -hmm. and like their sinfulness and thinking like, We talked, I think it was last week, and then we've talked in staff meeting about this practice of like silence Mm -hmm. and just like continuing to hear that. I've been really convicted that I don't 
do a very good job of that. Mm-hmm. Like to be still or to listen. And yeah. like, I'm always talking, <laughs> like praying and Thinking. looking and reading and yeah. studying. <laughs> but it's like, how can I actually like yeah. just sit before the Lord and say, okay, God, what do you have for me today? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you trying to tell me? Let me quiet my heart. Mm-hmm. Let me still myself. Let me turn out all the noise yeah. so that I can hear from you. Yeah. And we were kind of talking to you, like, I feel like I have identifiable times where I remember, like, when I was quiet um, and just, like, the nearness of God mm-hmm. to me in those moments. Um, and so, yeah, like, why wouldn't I do that more when that time is so sweet? Right. Yeah. Just to hear from Him and feel His nearness. And, yeah. yeah. But it's so easy to fill it with oh, yeah. other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like all the to-do list, all mm-hmm. the things we, we were talking yeah. about Katie earlier, like all the things that yeah. are running Racing through, our, through mind, our minds. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, help mm-hmm. me just to listen, to put all that out, mm-hmm. just to listen to you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even hard, like Will was saying, in service sometimes if we have our Bibles out. Yeah. Like we're like, oh, I mean, our, instead of our Bible, our yeah, phone. Yeah, doing your groceries. <laughs> yeah, checking fantasy football, whatever Yeah, is, let know. me quickly look at this and then how yeah. quickly you're distracted. Yeah. Yeah, and really we should be cherishing that time mm, like, yeah. to come into his presence and to hear from him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so another question we have. Yes. Uh, most of the praise that is offered to God in the cultural Christianity that permeates the West is both man-centered and works-based. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? And how much of your personal worship is still marked by a man-centered, works-based mm-hmm. approach? Yeah. That's a big this question. Is a big question. <laughs> I feel like there are lots of things that could go into this question, too. I mean, I think ultimately we're sinners mm-hmm. with a propensity to sin um, and to turn everything about us and um, to do. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot, though, that... Yeah. I think when we think about the gospel, like, mm-hmm. in general, like, in God's word, it is meant to confront us mm-hmm. and challenge us and convict us. It's sharp. It's yeah. that two-edged yeah. sword. Um, and so when we come to it, and then sometimes we come up against something that we don't necessarily like mm-hmm. or we don't agree with because mm-hmm. we're on the throne, mm-hmm. we just take it out. Yeah. And we're like, well, I don't need that piece of the gospel. I don't yeah. need that piece of God's word. Like, I find that offensive. Why mm-hmm. would I do that? And it's, I think that's what's kind of slowly led us mm-hmm. to where we are, where it's all about us and yeah. about what we want. Yeah. And so, like Will said, there's now pastors and teachers out there mm-hmm. that are preaching to support our idols instead of saying, no, this is the truth of God's word. And it's not always going to be something that you come to and go, oh, wow, look at how good I'm doing. (laughs) Because really we're not. Like we're sinners Mm -hmm. in desperate need of a savior. And that's what the gospel reminds us of. Mm -hmm. And I think when we spend time in God's word, like we were Mm -hmm. talking about this, the closer we are to to the Lord and spending time in his word and then understanding the gospel, growing in the gospel, our filter goes up. Yes. So we're able to easily pick out or maybe easier than we could three yeah. years ago. Yeah, that's what I, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, this Praise is the not the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Because you would agree with that. We yeah. talked about that. I was yeah. like, I feel like probably a few years ago, I feel like now it's definitely like my filter is so much different, which I mean, ultimately it's sanctification yeah. and the Holy Spirit working within me. But my filter is so much different now than it was just a few years ago. And not that it comes like naturally, yeah. but it's more of um, my filter. I just which praise the Lord for yeah. that. So, And I think even being able to like ask those questions of the mm-hmm. things that we're listening to or yes. yeah. seeing on Instagram mm-hmm. or hearing friends talk about yeah. and be able to go, hey, is that really the gospel? Like, yeah. I'm not really sure that's yeah. the gospel or that's what the Bible, where does the Bible say that? Show right. me where it says that. Right. You know? Yeah. And just being able to do those things. And I think like 
that comes though mm-hmm. by spending time in the word. Correct. Yeah. And like walking closer to Jesus yeah. and having people that are growing mm-hmm. alongside you. Like we'll talk about community today yes. yeah. and being able to say like, Hey, Kristen, I know you're reading that this way, but like, wh- mm-hmm. how did you get there? Or right. what made you see that in scripture? Like yeah. show me that, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just thinking like, Oh, this is what yeah. I want it to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is another part of that book that I'm reading right now. Too. Oh, really? It's like interpretation mm. um, of the word. And like, yes, we all come at the word. Like we're all in different seasons yeah. when we're reading scripture and spending time with the Lord. Um, but the we can't have our own interpretation of what the word says. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. And that's mm-hmm. so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Like when we approach it that way. Yeah. <laughs> like we'll all apply it differently. But right. ultimately we should really have the same interpretation. Yeah. It says what it says. Yeah. 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 No, that's so true. And for you, like watching at home, I think, um, to be able to like grow in that Mm. gospel filter or whatever, you know, like to be able to spend time with Jesus helps grow in that. But also like, if you're listening to someone and you're like, I don't know who they are or what they believe, like Google them, (laughs) read their beliefs page, you know, like figure out like, are they believing the truth of scripture what am I actually putting into my brain and putting mm-hmm. into my soul, mm-hmm. like head, heart, hands that's affecting like how I live, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So, and, and having good gospel centered resources. Yeah. Yeah. I was just kind of thinking about that too. Like even if you're watching and you don't necessarily know how to read scripture, study yeah. scripture, we would love to help you and come alongside you, provide you with resources um, so that you can study scripture. Yes. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't, get into their word because they don't know where to start. They yeah. don't know how to understand it or they're confused on what to do, what yes. a time with the Lord looks like. Um, so we would love to come alongside you if that's to you. So. Yeah, absolutely. You can put that in that QR code or you can tell Katie mm-hmm. as she's moderating and we'll be able to send you some stuff, yeah. reach out, get in contact with you. I think online too on our website, there's also a resource page mm-hmm. that has some gospel centered resources. I think there's some parenting, some yeah. marriage ones. So if you're just looking for something and you're like, can I trust this resource? Mm-hmm. These are ones that we would say yeah. like are trustworthy. Yeah, that's a great, yeah, great so. point. Yeah. Um, but it's a heavy subject today. Mm-hmm. And so as you're sitting there and you're talking with one another or pick up the phone and call someone, <laughs> but begin to like share and process like the things the Lord is teaching you in your own life, because it's so good for us to be able to share those things yeah. in community. Yeah. Um, and I just love that picture that he even gave of Thomas, like reminding us again, mm-hmm. how God showed up when he was in community. And mm-hmm. so if you're in the area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday morning at either our Memphis location or our Collierville location. Um, and wherever you're watching from, if we can help you get into a gospel-centered community or a gospel-centered church where you live, reach out to us again through the QR code or through Katie because we would love to help you find a place where you can plug in and grow alongside other believers. So yeah, we're really excited uh, that we got to spend time with you today and we love you guys and we hope to see you next week. Bye.